Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 5, The Gothic War continues. So we've had a little bit of feedback on previous episodes, so stay tuned till the end of the episode when I'll be addressing that feedback. Last time, we ended up with the Byzantine Empire having taken control of a good part of Italy, from Sicily in the south all the way to the Po River, leaving the northernmost part of the peninsula to the Goths. This was also thanks to the great military skills of the Byzantine general Belisarius. But now, with the war seemingly over, he was called back to the Persian front. With Belisarius back fighting in the east, the organization of the army started to come apart. If you add to this the fact that pay hadn't been coming along regularly for quite a while, you get a rather grumpy bunch of soldiers. As far as the Italians were concerned, after the war, they now had to face heavy imperial taxation and were also not at all happy and were now regretting being saved, air quotes, from the Goths by the so-called Roman soldiers, who now set to bleeding the country dry in an attempt to accumulate as much personal wealth as possible, and corruption became rampant. In light of these developments, the Goths saw that the situation allowed some room for manoeuvre. After a couple of not-so-brilliant kings in rapid successions, namely Ildabad, who actually has the word bad in his name, who was offed within a year by an angry bodyguard whose woman the king may or may not have offended in some way, then we had a non-Gothic king, Ereric, who was from the Rugian tribe, and it seems that he actually offered to sell the Italian Gothic kingdom over to the Byzantines, and that's really not the sort of thing that you want your king to do. Now, if you want to forget Ildabad and Ereric, go right ahead. They're just two extra names to remember. But they did have a time between the defeated king Vitigus and the person who was coming next. At this point, the Goths elected a man called Totila, as their new king in the year 541. His actual name was Baduila. Indeed, Totila was a nickname meaning immortal, which he had already managed to acquire at the tender age of 25 through his military exploits. Now, my dear listeners, mainly my wife and one or two other people who happen to be listening by accident, please forgive me for what I'm about to say, but I just couldn't resist. Totila was made of sterner stuff than the more recent kings. You could also say he was a very sober fellow. You could say he was a teetotaler. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, please, please, please don't stop listening. Anyway, the first thing Totila did was to build up his army and bolster the fleet that Theodoric had created when he had twigged that the Byzantines didn't have a particularly friendly attitude in mind. Totila showed that he could learn from past mistakes, and rather than waste time, energy and men in long sieges around city walls, he used diplomacy to get the cities to surrender, and once he had control, he would tear down the walls, 
so that they could not be used again to keep him out. He also hit the Roman nobility, which had supported the imperials, where it hurt, namely their money purses, by confiscating their lands and taking away their slaves with a promise of freedom, which also added able-bodied men to his army. It is in the early stages of his reign that we can place the meeting with Saint Benedict, who was a Catholic monk, now venerated as a saint, who founded the order that bears his name, the Benedictines. Totila supposedly sought him out at his monastery in Monte Cassino because he was alleged to have the power to foresee the future. Our source for the meeting are the dialogues of Pope Gregory the Great, who takes a very negative view of the king, and so we don't know how balanced the story really is. In any case, Totila wanted to test the holy man and had a squire dress up in his regal attire and go to Benedict with a select guard. As soon as the impostor was in the presence of the saint, he was told to take off the clothes that were not his because he was not the king. And so he went whimpering back to Totila. Then Totila finally went all penitent and groveling up to Benedict and was promptly told to stop being naughty and cruel. He was then told that he would soon go to Rome, cross the sea, reign for another nine years, and then lose his life and his kingdom. Happy tidings, in other words. Great meeting, thanks for the pep talk. Apparently, after the meeting, Totila was less naughty and cruel, although we don't really have much indication that he was naughty and cruel to begin with. Whatever the case may have been, the Goths met with one success after another, pushing the front south and taking such important cities as Benevento and Naples. In the winter between 546 and 547, they even took Rome for a few months, then lost it, then took it again, and then lost it again. One of these times was also really film-style, with Isaurian imperial guards betraying the empire and letting down ropes to let the Goths in in the Azanara Gate. In these continued sieges, the population of Rome was reduced to a minimum, with the remaining inhabitants facing starvation, with some committing suicide rather than facing a long and painful death by starvation. One particularly interesting episode of the back-and-forth sieging of Rome has got to do with the action on the Tiber River. At the time, the city was in imperial hands and under Goth siege. To make sure that the city could not be resupplied from the sea via the river, Totila had two towers built along the river, blocking access to the city. By this time, the Byzantine general Belisarius was back in Italy again, and where others would have seen an unsurmountable obstacle, Belisarius saw a chance for some engineering. So, if the problem is represented by two tall towers, the solution are taller towers. Indeed, Belisarius had taller towers built on floating platforms and had them float up to the Goth towers. Before they knew what had hit them, the Goths guarding the towers had arrows raining down on them from covered vantage points, and their position was soon overcome. However, Belisarius was still stopped from resupplying the city, not by the Goths, but by one of his own commanders. Close by was the imperial position of Porto, held by a commander 
by the name of Isace, which may translate into something like Isaac, but that's another name that you're allowed to forget. As soon as he heard that Belisarius had won a decisive victory with his siege bridge, he took his contingent out so that he could participate in the coming glory. Unfortunately for him, he was defeated and killed by a Gothic contingent. When Belisarius heard the news that his commander had been killed, he believed that the town that he guarded had been taken and turned back, leaving the city without supplies. Aside from the complicated situation in Rome, things were going quite well for the Goths, who had managed to take back almost all of the peninsula. Only when the Goths landed in Sicily in the year 550, after a further almost ten years of war, did the Byzantine Emperor Justinian decide to reinvest in the war effort in Italy in a serious way. He placed an Armenian-born eunuch called Narsus in charge. Narsus didn't have much military experience, but he was a very able politician, and he was helped in the endeavour by more competent and experienced generals. Narsus led a 30,000-strong army into Italy from Dalmatia. Interestingly, the army contained anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 Lombards, who would see Italy for the first time and bring back tales to their people. The army made its way slowly down the Adriatic coast and finally met Totila's forces in the decisive battle of Bustagallorum, known better as the Battle of Tagine, in current-day Perugia in central Italy. Totila, as he took position the day before the battle, noticed a small rise between the two positions and marked it for a quick takeover on the following day. When dawn came, however, he found that the Byzantine army had also noticed it and taken it during the night. The Goths could not allow themselves to make any further mistakes. They weren't fighting for land or loot, but for their very survival and the survival of the Gothic kingdom. Things kicked off with a Game of Thrones-style duel. It was between a gigantic Goth by the name of Coca and an imperial soldier of Armenian origin called Ansala. The Armenian stood his ground calmly as the giant charged down. Then, at the last minute, Ansala dodged and stuck the goth in his side, killing him. Things then proceeded with a show of a sort of gothic war dance by King Totala himself, kind of a horseback version of the All Blacks Hakka, I would imagine. There is even a name for it, and forgive my Gothic pronunciation, but it was something like Drisherid. Anyway, it was supposed to have been quite impressive. Now, you might be asking yourselves what on earth the Goths were playing at. Well, as with every great battle story, there was, there were reinforcements on the way. Specifically speaking, around 2,000 Goths in this movie, they got there on time. In time for lunch, actually, and in the hope that the Byzantines would be busy lounging around having their lunch, Totila decided that that was the moment to attack. In fact, the Imperials had had lunch, but as a very quick snack without breaking ranks, and so they were ready. They arrayed in a half-moon formation with archers on the sides. 
when the Goth cavalry charged the centre with their spears, they were cut down as they advanced, and the few who reached the enemy were dragged down from their horses. The retreat was sounded, but as the cavalry came charging back, the infantry were clumsy in their manoeuvres to create a corridor and were trampled. The Byzantine cavalry now saw their chance, and here comes the sentence that those of you who are interested in military history will have heard countless times, the retreat turned into a rout. King Totila was killed as he retreated from the field of battle, possibly killed by a spear in his side. He had reigned for eleven years, and if we give credit to the prophecy of St. Benedict, he was spot on. There had been eleven years of war, but Totila had shown that he was something more than a warlord. He had freed many slaves, some of whom had become part of his army. There is also a story about the father of a young girl who had been raped by his soldiers going to Totila and the king finding and executing those responsible. He may have proven to be a good king, perhaps another Theodoric the Great, but it was not to be. We can say that the Gothic kingdom ended at the Battle of Tagine, but there was an epilogue that's also good for another little story, also because it includes a Richard Lionheart-style ending. The Goths regrouped and elected a new king, Tia. I won't spend any time pointing out Tia, Totila, let's just leave it. Tia ended up leading the Goths south, surviving long enough to fight the Byzantines again, this time at the Mons Lactarius, the Lattari Mountain or Milk Mountains. It is here that Teia made his last stand, with a sword in one hand and his shield in the other to guard from the oncoming arrows. The shield, looking like a pincushion, would become heavy under the weight of the projectiles and he would call for a fresh one. It is exactly during one of these shield changes that an arrow got through and killed the last Gothic king. His Goths fought on for a while for their lives and for glory, but in the end they also surrendered. On the 13th of August in the year 554, Justinian issued the Pramatica Sanzione, officially integrating the Italian peninsula back into the empire. Some skirmishes continued into at least 561, with resistance from the cities of Brescia and Verona. The peninsula was also crisscrossed by bands of roving tribes who had participated in the war, or taking advantage such as the ever-threatening Franks. But in time, the imperial forces were in full control, and the kingdom founded by Theodoric was truly no more. So, now their story is over. What can we say of the legacy of the Goths in Italy? Many of the surviving Goths disbanded and melted away into the local population, mixing to varying degrees. An interesting legal document, for example, mentioned a certain Stavile from Brescia in the year 769, almost 200 years later, claiming himself to be subject to the laws of the Goths. But this may be just because he didn't want to get hooked on the laws of the time. We also have some place name, such as the castle of Godega or Godega Santurbano in Treviso, Godia or the Godegaz Road in Friuli, or Godege 
near Vicenza. We have already mentioned some of the monuments as well, such as Theodoric's Mausoleum and the Arian Church in Ravenna, the capital of the kingdom. The Italian language also has a smattering of words from the Gothic. The reins of a horse in Italian are briglia. You would put your wine in a fiasca, and the part of the river that is uncovered when the water level lowers is the greto. And a long pole can be a stecca or stanga. Coming back to our story, for the moment at least, Italy was once again part of a Roman Empire that stretched all the way from Western Europe to the confines of the Persian Empire. The idea of the imperial administration was to reinstate the status quo from before the war and the reign of Theodoric, back to the good old days before all this Germanic kingdom nonsense. Time would show, however, that there was no going back. And next week, we'll see why that was. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we'd had a little feedback. So, first of all, I'd like to say hello to Roberto, who got in touch with us on the website blog. And he's looking forward to the moment when Pippin will be coming along to start the founding of Europe. Now, we're going to have to wait a little bit because we've got a couple of centuries of Lombards to get through before we get to Pippin. But he's on his way, and I imagine he'll be popping in around episode 10 or 11. This week, our Facebook page got a mention from Peshawar KPK. Um, they posted a lovely video about the culture and history of Italy. Unfortunately, it is in Urdu, or Urdu, I'm not sure about the pronunciation there, but anyway, the Pakistani uh, language, and um, unfortunately, my Pakistani is a bit on the non-existent side. But anyway, if there are friends listening from Pakistan or of Pakistani origin, you can go over there and look at that lovely video, or like me, just have a look at the nice pictures. Then uh, Simone said uh, that he's going to be traveling this week for business and he'll be accompanied by the podcast. So hello to Simone and we hope you have a nice safe travel uh, and that we don't bore you too much with the podcast or that it helps you go straight to sleep. Well, like them, you can get in touch with us uh, via email. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can find the website, ahistoryofitaly.com. And there you can click through also to our Facebook page or have a look at the History of Italy mini-docs on the YouTube channel where we travel around Italy and bring you a taste of some of the Italian cities. Please remember to subscribe, rate and review the podcast on your podcast provider. And until next week, as always, thank you very much for listening. Arrivederci e alla prossima. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. 
and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.